Hello all, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. We're still in North Wales, we're still coming to you from my spare room, and it's still the one-person true crime show that seeks out the unfamiliar and often long-forgotten cases of crimes from all across the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast that gives the show its title. It's fantastic having new enthusiasts back here joining me once again, and I hope that as you're listening in, that you're all good and well. So this time around then comes part two of the Monsters of Berkshire episode that we began last time, which we'll get to shortly, because I wrote it on the one and it ended up really quite long. It was broken down into two parts, so there won't be too much waffling shite at the start here, we're chomping at the bit ready to go with it. I've got the usual thanks to say to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this time around, with shout-outs going after Tom Davis, Ryan O'Shea, Kate McGregor and Wendy Sanders who's edited a pledge. Thanks very much you kind folks and bonus Patreon episode number 31 will be out for you very shortly. If you want to join these guys for some extra enthusiast then it costs you the best part of bugger all and you're more likely to see Johnny Depp and Amber Heard renewing their marriage vows than finding becoming a show Patreon are difficult to do. It's simply the show name and show logo if you look for it on the over on the Patreon site, or as ever, there's a shiny link in the episode show notes. So as I've said, there's no waffle really this week, we're right down to part two. Now if you haven't listened into part one already, then I suggest that you do so before we go any further here, or else this episode will make as much sense as parts two and three of The Matrix did. Lord of all bollocks that was, wasn't it? And the slight recap that I'll go through in shortly really won't do it any justice. So last episode, we left the Berkshire village of Beanham reeling from the horrific murder of three young girls within a six-month period. 17-year-old Yolandi Waddington and nine-year-olds Jacqueline Williams and Jeanette Wigmore. Now despite there having been one of the earliest examples of a mass blood screening following Yolandi's murder, police still didn't have the killer. And then there were another two killings just six months later, Jeanette and Jacqueline. However, only a couple of weeks after this horrific double murder, police had who they believed was the killer in custody. So let's find out if he was, eh? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving crimes against children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion as always whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this episode we look at the second part of this series' Monsters of Berkshire Tale, Part 2 of The Beast of Beanham. The man that police had in custody just three weeks after the deaths of Jeanette Wigmore and Jacqueline Williams was a 19-year-old Beanham resident named David Burgess. When Burgess had been initially spoken to just two days after the murders on April the 19th, he was of interest immediately to police because of him being a person of interest in the Yolandi Waddington murder six months previously, and further, he worked as a dumper truck driver at Fisher's Pit, which was just on the opposite side of Admore Lane to Blake's Pit. The following day, Burgess had told newspapers, Four policemen called on me last night. They asked me where I was on Monday night and I told them I was working at the excavation site opposite the gravel pit until 7pm. While I was at the pit, I slipped home at about 6pm to see if I'd caught a rabbit in a trap I'd set as I do a bit of rabbiting around the village. Now this was confirmed by Burgess's brother John who worked at the same pit as him. But John Burgess, when he was spoken to, claimed that his brother had been away for about 20 minutes before he found him back in the pit mess hut reading a book just before 7pm. He'd then driven his brother home and headed home himself to nearby Aldermaston. On the following morning when he picked him up, John Burgess casually asked his brother if he'd been to the other gravel pit, meaning looking for snares, and was surprised by David's sharp reply, It wasn't me. Detective Superintendent Marchant now directed his attentions towards David Burgess, 
instinctively sure that he'd found his killer. And on the 25th of April, Burgess was spoken to for a second time, and this time asked to supply clothing that he'd worn on the day of the murders. This request involved a trip to the gravel pit with Detective Sergeant Peter Goldsworthy to retrieve a coat and work trousers Burgess had left there, and once these were collected, along with Burgess's shoes, they were taken to the Forensic Science Laboratories at Aldermaston, where the items were fast-tracked examined by Dr Brian Rees. With him now firmly established as the prime suspect, Burgess was watched closely and police made a point of continuing their search at the gravel pit, making sure that Burgess saw them. Ten days after he'd been spoken to and given clothing for analysis, Dr Reese was working on the pair of shoes that Burgess had been wearing on the day of the murder, and just as Detective Superintendent Marchant had anticipated, the right boot bore bloodstains belonging to the same group as Jeanette's, group AB slash MN, impressive as evidence as it belonged to just 1.5% of the population. Burgess's blood, meanwhile, was group OM. The previous day also, a green-handled pocket knife whose blade matched the stab wound width of between a half and three quarters of an inch width to Jeanette had been found, and guess where? Hidden underneath a pile of newspapers and an old towel in the Fisher's Pit mess hut. And guess who the last person seen handling the knife had been? Yep, David Burgess. David Burgess was arrested at 7.40am on the morning of Sunday the 7th of May 1967 at his home, number 7 Stonyfields in Beenham, and was taken to Newbury Police Station for interview. At the beginning of this, the cocksure Burgess denied all knowledge of the two murders, but floundered somewhat as he was informed of and asked to account for the blood on his boots, which he said he didn't know how had gotten there, claiming, it could be mine, it could be anyone's. When told that it was of the same blood group as Jeanette's, Burgess then unaccountably broke into a fit of weeping and told police, you catch the one that I chased away, catch that man I chased away. Asked to expand upon this and say who he was going on about, Burgess couldn't say, just claiming that he would get carved up if he did but when police persisted and asked him to expand on this rather cryptic statement, Burgess eventually replied tearfully, I was up at the end of the pit where I work, I heard someone scream, and when I went across, I saw her. A bloke was stood there, and she was in the water. I shouted at him, I was scared, I picked her up, I saw that she was bloody and all that, then I left her. He didn't know who the man was and he decided not to interfere he claimed because he was scared. He didn't see the other girl at all. So how justified was this reason for him standing by to cold-bloodedly watch nine-year-old Jeanette Wigmore being attacked and murdered? Burgess claimed, well I got jumped the other night. He claimed the man, who he could only give a cursory description of, had then fled but the story then became so fantastically callous as to just not have the slightest shred of credibility. Asked by one of the detectives how near he got to Jeanette, Burgess replied, I picked her up, I saw there was blood and all that, and then left her there, saying nothing. This, he claimed, explained the blood on his boot, which police thought was a right load of old cock and bollocks, and following this, told Burgess at 9.25am, that he was to be charged with the murder of Jeanette Wigmore. Well, that's it then, Burgess replied. Police immediately returned to the Burgess household, where they re-emerged 20 minutes later with two white evidence bags filled with items, and then returned to Newbury Police Station, where at 11.40am, David Burgess was charged with murder. His response to this was, I never killed her. The following morning, Burgess appeared before Reading Magistrates, where in a seven-minute hearing, Burgess, dressed in a green combat jacket, blue jeans, brown suede shoes and a white shirt, was remanded in custody to Oxford Prison. As the van containing him left the court, it was mobbed by an angry crowd of 70 people, surging forward and throwing items, 
paying for his blood and the reintroduction of the death penalty. Sixteen days later, he was back at the same court where in another short hearing, he was remanded further, this time also charged that same day with the murder of Jacqueline Williams. His reply to that charge was, nothing to say. At the beginning of June that year, Thursday the 8th, he was committed by Reading Magistrates to appear at Gloucester Aziz's on July the 3rd to face charges of double murder. Now with the suspected killer now locked away awaiting trial, the funeral of Jeanette and Jacqueline was held at St Mary's Church in Beenham on Thursday the 15th of June at 3pm in a service attended by the girls' families and almost all of the villagers of Beenham. Even Jeanette's grandmother had been flown home from Australia, where she'd emigrated to some years before, paid for by the Metropolitan Police Widows Fund, as her late husband had been a police officer. The children of Beenham didn't attend. Their respects to their former classmates instead paid in a special assembly held that same morning in the village school. Jeanette and Jacqueline were interred side by side in a quiet corner of St Mary's churchyard, protected by the shade of a pine tree, and even today their graves remain well tended by the villagers of Beenham, often bearing fresh flowers. Cut into the white marble of Jacqueline's headstone is the simple inscription, In ever-loving memory of our darling daughter Jacqueline Ann Williams, taken from us 17th of April 1967, aged 9 years 10 months. Whilst Jeanette reads, A tiny flower lent not given to bud on earth, but bloom in heaven. The girls have never been forgotten. And nor was the man who, as they were interred that day in 1967, was in prison awaiting trial for their murder. Born on the 1st of August 1947, David Burgess was the second eldest of five children, four sons and a daughter, who lived with his parents, Margaret and Leslie, and two younger brothers, Gary and Philip, in a semi-detached house in the Stonyfield area of Beenham, which adjoined Webb's Lane and ran almost parallel to Beenham Garage. He'd been an unremarkable child until the age of eight, when young David had lost his left eye as the result of an accident with a friend firing an air pistol the injured Burgess as he ran across the field of fire. As a result, it was replaced with a glass eye that more than one villager said gave him a sinister appearance and led to the young Burgess becoming an angry child as he was teased constantly for his luck. Indeed, he carried this surly attitude on and was remembered as being a difficult person to make friends with, disliked by many and remembered years later by one villager as being, I quote, Horrible, even at school. My late husband knew him and said he used to pull the wings off insects. Sounds delightful, doesn't he? He was a midstream student who attended Beenham Primary until aged 11, when he left and attended Willink Secondary School in nearby Burgfield Common. Here, he was again an average student at best, although one who was constantly remembered for his polite manner to his schoolmasters. He did express an interest and an enthusiasm for rugby, and although he played, he was never consistently good enough to regularly appear out for a team. Now this was around about the same time that Burgess began one of several skirmishes he would have with the law for various petty crimes, the first being when he was placed on probation at age 12 for housebreaking. Never destined to be a master criminal though, or to shine academically, Burgess left school aged 15 and gained employment as a labourer on Beenham's Park Farm, which soon gravitated to working at the gravel pits either side of Ardmore Lane that were owned by Park Farm landowner Tom Cooper, alongside his elder brother John. So this would become the pattern of his life, go to work at the pits, go out for a drink in the local pubs, and poaching, which he was especially keen at and developed into a skilled rabbit catcher. He never seemed to have a regular girlfriend, although was by no means a loner, associated and knocking about with a mixed group of his age range from Beenham, who'd visit the pubs and clubs of the surrounding areas. Yet he could never shake off this sinister appearance, and possibly as a result of self-consciousness about his false eye, was quick to argue with people, 
and wasn't known to back down from a confrontation. Yet here he was, claiming that he was too afraid to have intervened when he saw a killer standing over the body of a nine-year-old girl. Just a week before his trial was due to begin, on the 6th of July, Burgess claimed to have had a sudden change of mind. He told police that he did, after all, know the man who he'd seen at the gravel pit, a person he knew as Mac. Now, although his memory didn't stretch to a full name, or where the man was from, he thought, however, that the man's surname might be McNabb. Burgess claimed further, I met him at the Viking Cafe on Caversham Road in Reading. It should be possible to trace him from there. Explaining his former reticence about this startling new information, Burgess explained, I was in the bar at the Six Bells in Beenham when Mac came up to me in the gents and told me to keep my mouth shut about what I'd seen if I knew what was good for me. When I said to him, or what, he explained that someone in my family would end up like it. In the event, Burgess's new story was checked out, and detectives did visit the Viking Cafe, but no one there knew a McNabb or anyone with a name remotely similar. All such Macs in the local area were also traced, and all were found to have cast-iron alibis for the day of the murder. A week after this story that stank to high heaven, because it sounds a load of old shit, doesn't it? On the 13th of July 1967, the trial began at Gloucester Assizes before Mr Justice Stable, where Burgess issued a plea of not guilty to the two counts of murder. Douglas Draycott QC had been appointed to defend Burgess, whilst Kenneth Jones QC represented the Crown. Mr Draycott told the court that the defendant was a victim of prejudice and suspicion, most of which he'd brought on himself. He said, You must do your best to put that out of your mind. You must bear in mind during his evidence the atmosphere in Beenham at the time. There had already been inquiries into another murder. The atmosphere in Beenham was something you could cut with a knife. Now this was a reference, in fact it was the only reference during the trial to the murder of Yolandi Waddington. The court, and indeed the whole village knew and had known that David Burgess was a suspect in that crime. Mr Draycott continued, Burgess is not going to cut a good figure in the witness box. He's heaven's gift to the cross-examiner. He's made two untrue statements and has denied any knowledge of the circumstances right up to May the 7th, three weeks after the murder. Because a person tells lies in that way, it does not mean he's guilty of murder. You have to look at the reason he's told lies. He was a frightened youth who did not want to be involved. If he told police he was in that pit and stood over the girl, he would have been suspect number one, and he didn't intend getting himself into that position. But he is no cunning, clever criminal. He has no great brain. He then added the fact that just because police had been unable to trace this elusive Mac did not mean that he didn't exist. On the second day of the trial, an ashen-faced Anthony Wigmore appeared in the dock wearing a black armband. He recounted his fruitless search in his car around the village for the girls, culminating in him arriving at the gravel pit just before 8.30pm. On the verge of tears, he described looking in the tin hut in the pit before seeing the girls' bikes abandoned a short distance away. Approaching them, he then told the court how he had found his daughter. I quote, I turned around from the bikes and saw her lying at the bottom of the bank. In a barely audible voice, Anthony then told the court how he'd identified his daughter's body at the Royal Berkshire Hospital on April the 19th, in company with Jacqueline's mother Pamela, who had identified her body. A number of other witnesses were to give evidence throughout the opening days of the trial, including a man who'd seen a dumper truck parked at the entrance to the pit for a total of 25 minutes from 6pm that evening, and another man, a Mr Gittings, who told how he walked his dog at the scene 90 minutes later at about 7.30pm, and had noticed two bicycles there as he passed, but saw no sign or sound of any children there in the 20 minutes he was walking his dog there. 
40 minutes later, Anthony Wigmore discovered his daughter's body. Burgess, it later transpired, had joined the scores of villagers eager to search for the girls, had talked to television and newspaper reporters about the tragedy, and had even three days before his arrest offered his condolences to Terence Williams, Jacqueline's father, by offering to buy him a drink in the local pub, which Terence had accepted. Was this the actions of a cold-hearted killer with brass bollocks as big as a bull's? or the actions of a genuine and innocent man. Burgess's brother John told the court that after work on the day of the murder, he had driven David home. He went on, I went back to the pit next day. On the way, my brother said, there was some trouble last night. Two girls were missing at Blake's pit. I asked if he knew who they were, and he said he didn't. When I asked him if he'd been there or had had anything to do with it, he lost his temper and said he'd not been up there or had anything to do with it, so that was good enough. Burgess's father also appeared to back this up, claiming that he'd only seen Burgess briefly on the evening of the murders before he'd left to begin his night shift at a local engineering works, and that he'd noticed no difference. Burgess had been his usual self. But the prosecution alleged that he was undoubtedly thinking overtime about what he'd done, and was preparing himself a cover story, perhaps even preempting what he would say should he be arrested on suspicion of murder. Now this was suggested by the conversation that was recalled for the court by Detective Sergeant Peter Goldsworthy, who'd called upon Burgess on the 25th of April, and had taken him to Fisher's pit to retrieve articles of clothing for examination. Detective Sergeant Goldsworthy told the court that as they drove to the gravel pit together, Burgess had said, the trouble in this village is that everyone blames me and Jimmy if anything happens. We're waiting for you to catch this bloke so we can have a bloody good laugh at them. Detective Sergeant Goldsworthy had replied, I said to him, I cannot see anything to laugh about in this business. This man is sick and needs special treatment. The real criminals are the people shielding him because they gamble him with other children's lives. Burgess Yes, I suppose he must be a nutter. Do you think he could say he didn't know what he was doing and get away with it? Detective Sergeant Goldsworthy. I do not know enough about mental illness to answer that. That's a matter for the psychiatrist to sort out when we get him. Although there were allegations made by the defence that the questioning of Burgess had been somewhat forceful, this was denied by the detective who took pains to explain that police had been nothing but patient with Burgess, while still firmly questioning him purely for the reason that they required answers in the constantly moving investigation. Throughout the testimony of every witness who appeared, Burgess was remembered by the officer that he was handcuffed to, PC Rodney Watson, for his bizarre behaviour in the court. He seemed to have no grasp of the seriousness of the situation he was in, instead sniggering at times such as one witness, a drinking partner and fellow worker of his, Jimmy Sharp, stumbling over his evidence and becoming embarrassed at being told to speak up. He'd also several times openly show his disdain and impatience with the court, and at one point, when asked by the judge if he needed a break, Burgess quite cheerfully told him that he requested a recess for a puff on the old fag. Granted this, as he was led past the families of the two girls in the gallery, Burgess had even smiled at them. When he was met with looks that could kill from them, he visibly and simply shrugged his shoulders and continued past. Absolutely unreal that, isn't it? It then came to David Burgess's own turn in the witness box. Arrogant and self-assured throughout the time he gave evidence on his own behalf, Burgess told the jury that apart from age 12, when he'd been placed on probation for the crime of housebreaking, he'd never been in any serious trouble with the police. Once in the witness box, Burgess's character came under close and critical scrutiny by both the judge and Mr Jones for the prosecution. Now the exchange between them all is well worth reading out in full, and Burgess's testimony began. I tipped the load, parked the dumper and then walked along Ardmore Lane. 
I pulled the wires of the snares and then left them on the ground. I walked back down the lane and heard a scream, so I went to see what it was. I got through the bushes and was looking down into Blake's pit. I saw a young girl at his feet, I believe she was face down in the water. The man ran off towards the main bath road. When he looked towards me, I recognised him. Asked who the man was, Burgess continued. They called him Mac, I believe his name was McNabb. When he ran off, I went down into the pit to where the kid was lying in the water. I turned her over, she appeared to be dead. When I saw she was bleeding and her blood was going between my fingers, I let her drop back the way she was when I found her. I went in the direction this bloke Mac had run, but I didn't run into the wood. I didn't want the bloke hiding behind a tree, jumping out and sticking a knife in my back. I was almost out onto the track when I heard a car start up. It was a brown hillman going in the direction of the main A4 Bath Road. I'd seen the same car in Reading, parked next to the Viking Cafe. He next claimed that he'd driven the dumper back to his own pit and had a wash, claiming, I noticed a spot of blood on my boot, so I scrubbed it off. He decided to say nothing to the police because he would be the number one suspect. When he got home, there was salad for tea, but he claimed he'd thrown it onto the fire, stating, After what I'd just seen, I couldn't eat. Subsequently, he'd heard that a man driving a brown Hillman Husky model was seen changing his clothes in the gravel pit, and when Burgess had mentioned this to other customers in the Six Bells public house, they'd urged him to go to the police with his story, so he decided to because, he claimed, it was the only way to get a bit of peace. And because of the threats Mac had made against him, Burgess claimed, if the same thing happened, I'd still keep my mouth shut. Now the conversation between Mr Jones for the prosecution and Burgess then continued as follows. Jones, what did you feel about these murders? Burgess, I know it was wrong and I know the bloke who done it should be strung up, but he's still free isn't he? Jones, you are not a timid young man. Burgess, no. Jones, not frightened of getting into a fight if needs be? No. After Burgess once again described seeing a man standing over Jeanette, Jones told him, I suggest to you that you are a liar and that you are the murderer. Did it even occur to you that there might have even been a chance in one million that a doctor could have helped that little girl? There was an angry, restless atmosphere in the court as Burgess replied, No, she looked dead, so I left her. At this point, Mr Justice Stable intervened and the conversation continued. Mr Justice Stable, when did you make up your mind to conceal what you have now told the jury you saw happen in the pit? Burgess, well I was already thinking about it, thinking that I would have nothing to do with it. Stable, you've seen this little girl who was brutally murdered, the murderer only two minutes ahead of you. If you'd raised a hue and cry, don't you think the police might have caught him? Burgess, I would have to get back down the pit and he would have been miles away by then. Stable, if every police officer in Berkshire had been alerted within a couple of minutes, why should that mean trouble for you? Burgess, I didn't want to be pestered with the law. I didn't want the police around me for statements at the time. Back to the prosecuting counsel now as the conversation continued. Jones. Why did you not take the direct route back to the quarry where you work? Burgess, I didn't want to walk up Admore Lane with blood dripping from my fingers, did I? Jones, have you got any normal feelings at all, Burgess? Burgess, there was nothing I could do for that girl. Jones, but there was something you could do for all the other little girls in Beanham. As long as this monster was free, no little girl was safe. I ask you again. Have you got any normal feelings at all? For some people, yes. Not for little girls. She was dead. There was nothing I could do. When Mr Jones observed that 999 young men out of a thousand would have run along the lane shouting for help, Burgess replied sternly, Well, I expect then that I am the thousandth. Jones, are you fond of children? Burgess, 
it doesn't make any difference. Now it clearly wasn't a view that was shared by Mr Justice Stable. In his summing up on Friday the 21st of July, which lasted 105 minutes, the judge gave every sign of his very evident disapproval of the defendant and presented this crucial question to the jury. Did he give any indication at any time that he felt pity or distress or horror? Not about what he'd done, but about what he had found, what he had seen happen to that stricken child. Or did he give the impression that so long as he was not bothered, then nothing else mattered? Taking with them aerial plans and photographs of the crime scene, the jury retired to consider their verdict. When they filed back into the courtroom after retiring for only 3 hours and 20 minutes deliberation, the jury announced a unanimous verdict of guilty on both counts of murder. As he stood motionless in the dock with his arms folded, Burgess listened as Mr Justice Sable commented, I have not the slightest doubt that the verdict is right, and you know it is. The cloud of fear is lifted from this part of Berkshire. He then sentenced David Burgess to two counts of life imprisonment, and as he was led away to begin his sentence in the maximum security E-wing of Durham Prison, with a broad smile on his face, Jacqueline's mother Pauline Williams broke down weeping. Burgess's own family, who'd attended each day of the trial, also left the public gallery immediately. Now the Williams and Wigmore families both moved away from Beenham soon after the deaths of Jacqueline and Jeanette because, as villagers were later to claim, the memories were too painful. There was some consolation for the Wigmores with the birth, about a year afterwards, of another daughter, but from that moment on they became almost reclusive, fiercely private people. In a feature for BBC News in the wake of the Soham murders, a long-time resident of Beenham told reporters, describing the Wigmores, they couldn't hack it. Yes, they had another daughter soon after, but every time something like this happens, it brings it all back. You can only guess what they're going through. No one knows. Get over it? No, they never got over it. How on earth would you ever, I ask you? Just over three weeks after being found guilty, on Monday the 14th of August, David Burgess launched an appeal against his conviction, which was heard five months later on Monday the 22nd of January 1968 at the Appeal Court in London, and was denied. Examining the evidence, the nonsense account of the mysterious Mac, the blood on his shoes, the circumstantial evidence, a hearing comprised of Lord Parker, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Justice Sachs and Mr Justice Ashworth claimed that the guilty verdict was a quote really inevitable based on the wealth of evidence and the cock and bollocks story that Burgess had come out with. So he remained in the maximum security E-wing of Durham Prison, a despised inmate who shared a segregated landing with just one other prisoner, the monster that was Ian Brady. Now an account of how reviled Burgess was as a prisoner can be found in John McVicker's prison memoir, McVicker by himself. Fantastic book, well worth reading. And recounts how in February 1968, seven months after his incarceration, a new governor came to Durham and made sweeping changes to the regimes there. One being the attempt to invite segregated prisoners to mix with the others in association, including watching TV. Now Ian Brady was savvy enough to completely disregard this, but Burgess accepted, and John McVicker describes in his book how one evening in February 1968, Burgess was in the TV room accompanied by a prison officer when McVicker entered the room and told one of the other prisoners to go and turn off the television, incensed at having the likes of Burgess watching it. The atmosphere then turned toxic in the room as the prisoners, because all of them had read the accounts of Burgess's crimes in the newspapers, began talking out loud about their own children and graphically what they would do and like to do to anyone who harmed them. For his own safety, Burgess was immediately returned to his cell and never again was to associate with anyone from that wing. 
Now the book also recounts how there was a plan amongst the inmates to scold Burgess should they get chance, using sugared water as it would adhere to his skin and cause more damage. Popular guy, as you can tell. When a mutiny occurred shortly afterwards on 3rd of March 1968, caused by prisoners in Durham objecting to the implemented changes to their daily routines, several prisoners barricaded themselves in the wing offices and practically wrecked the joint, remarking just how nice it would have been should they have had Burgess and Brady in there with them. Now if you've seen the film McVicar, this episode features in the film, although Burgess and Brady are given fictional names. Burgess of course took no part in this mutiny, and reportedly even helped the prison staff clear up after it had been resolved, and the other prisoners were banged up behind their door for a period of 42 days solitary confinement as punishment. His parents visited him regularly in prison, making the trip up to Durham every 28 days, and in April 1968 his mother, who tirelessly believed in his innocence, told in a newspaper interview how the David she knew would see old ladies home safely of an evening and brought her chocolates every Friday without fail. He was categorically no killer. She described how she kept a mass of clippings about the case and as much case evidence as she could gather in a biscuit tin, which the family poured over night after night, looking for something, anything that had been overlooked that may help their son. They wrote countless letters to the Court of Appeal, the Prime Minister, even the Queen herself asking for help, but by that time also having left Beenham just within weeks of David's conviction, claiming that they no longer felt welcome in the village that had been their home for more than 20 years. After Burgess's younger brother Philip was refused service in his shop for no other reason than his brother's notoriety, the family decided it was time to leave and moved to a static caravan in the Hampshire town of Tadley, where for many years they continued campaigning for Burgess's release. By 1971, a group ran by a family friend of the Burgesses, the Lay Legal Complaints Group, claimed to have a petition signed by more than 5,000 people calling for his release, claiming that they had evidence that proved his innocence, but couldn't reveal it at the time. Now what this evidence was has never been made public, which suggests that it was highly questionable, perhaps fictional bollocks, much like Burgess's own account. It would seem simply that Leslie and Margaret Burgess were just unable to face up to the glaring evidence suggesting their son's guilt. Mums and their sons, I suppose, eh? But prison officers in Durham had no such qualms and were convinced of his guilt. Indeed, one was to come forward the month before Margaret gave her heartfelt newspaper interview with a story that suggested that Burgess was not only a double killer, but he was in fact a triple one. For less than a year after being jailed for life, Burgess had something to tell the staff at Durham Prison that made them shudder. He had admitted to them that he was also the killer of Yolandi Waddington. Now at the time Yolandi was murdered, Burgess had of course been a prime suspect in the crime, and this was something that he was now openly confirming himself. After receiving the account from prison officer John Malcolm, on April the 3rd 1968, detectives visited Burgess in Durham prison and suggested that he come clean to them about Yolandi's murder. With a smirk on his face, Burgess suggested that police make a search of Shrub Wood, a copse near to Beenham, which was done some weeks later in May 1968 and once again in 1970. And although it did produce some eight rusted knives and assorted bric-a-brac, none could be linked to Yolandi's murder. In the initial conversation between Burgess and police, he told them, grinning, So you think I'm guilty of killing her? Well, you'll have to prove it. But of course, police couldn't, and they knew that any prison confession Burgess had made would be quickly denied, so it just wasn't enough. This was the first of at least five reported occasions during the late 1960s that Burgess reportedly confessed his culpability in Yolandi's murder to prison officers, albeit with varying stories, and each time when it was reported to detectives, Burgess would deny these admissions and tell police to simply 
prove it. So Yolandi's murder for many years remained unsolved. The investigation unable to move any way whilst police were forced to await any advances in forensic science. The only slight comfort police could take was that a most likely killer was serving life imprisonment and so other young girls were safe from his clutches. But he reportedly wasn't safe from other prisoners. In 1970, a released Durham prisoner claimed that Burgess and three other prisoners were targets of a plot to poison their food with smuggled in quantities of cyanide. The other three recipients being John Straffen, Raymond Morris and Ian Brady. So no great losses there I'm sure. By 1974 Burgess had been moved to Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight and was eligible to apply for parole, yet by all accounts refused to do so, claiming that he didn't want release on any grounds until he was released with his name being exonerated. So he remained incarcerated, receiving a further term of imprisonment in 1978 after being convicted on a charge of wounding with intent of another prisoner during a prison brawl. By 1996, he was still in prison and had served 29 years imprisonment, his life sentence for double murder effectively having been served by that time, but he had subsequently been convicted on charges of benefit fraud which he'd been jailed for, claiming falsely under the name of another person who had died some years previously. Now how long he'd been doing so, and to the tune of how much, how he managed to get away with it while he was a serving prisoner is unrevealed. But in September of the same year, Burgess simply walked out of Layhill Open Prison in Watton Under Edge in Gloucestershire and didn't return after being out on licence. He'd been missing for three weeks at large without the public being warned before this fact was revealed, and although he was subsequently sighted in Bristol, he was to vanish once again. Now the public's angry response to this being covered up was then muddied somewhat by Avon and Somerset police, for at first, in an attempt to quell public outrage, they'd claimed that the fugitive wasn't considered dangerous by the authorities, but then completely went about face when they realised that people had memories and knew of Burgess's past crimes, and were forced to admit, we consider he is dangerous, and warn the public not to approach him. Jacqueline Williams's parents complained that police hadn't let them know of Burgess's escape. They had to hear the fact from newspaper reporters. And Jeanette's father, because her mother had long since sadly having passed away by that time, wanted to know why he had not been contacted, telling the newspaper. The last I heard was four months ago, when I was told Burgess was likely to get parole. A Lale prison may as well just not have had any staff on at all, as well as leaving the gates bloody wide open, as within the preceding five years there was an appalling catalogue of offences stemming from prisoners who were out on licence from there, and Burgess absconding suggested that absolutely nothing was being learned from any of these mistakes. And these mistakes involved a convicted rapist who had absconded and sexually assaulted a 37-year-old woman whilst at large, a convicted murderer who was allowed out for a day who had raped a nurse twice, and yet another rapist on home leave who had sexually assaulted a young woman. And now there was another minimum security risk prisoner at large, a convicted double murderer. Fuck's sake, Lael, get a grip, is all I can say. Burgess was at large for almost 18 months during which time police even raided his former home in Beenham in January 1998, suspecting that he may have been hiding there, but he was actually recaptured in Havant, near Portsmouth, on the 26th of February 1998, just two days after his picture and a description of his characterising features, six foot one inches tall, scars on his lips, and tattoos on his left arm of an eagle and the name Dave, was featured as an appeal on Crime Watch UK, which was on at the time and was good and useful for things like finding dangerous at large prisoners. And I don't really need to say what I think here, but I will anyway. Cheers, BBC, twats. And he was returned to prison, this time, you'll be glad to hear, a secure facility. He'd been recaptured minutes after he'd robbed the Lloyd's TSB Havant branch of £2,471. 
by pointing an imitation air pistol at a heavily pregnant cashier, and when he was apprehended, was sat in his blue Ford Orion car only a short distance away counting the money. Winchester Crown Court heard on the 5th of June 1998 that Burgess had during his time on the run been living a double life in Havant under an assumed name and had seen and been panicked by his wanted picture appearing on Crime Watch. Out of desperation, knowing now that he could not return to the cleaning job that he'd had, he had the following day robbed the bank before being apprehended. Burgess admitted charges of escaping from lawful custody, robbery and possession of an imitation firearm, and was jailed for 10 years. Now reportedly, whilst he was at large, I found a report from 1997, also whilst I was looking into the episode, that claims Burgess was wanted as a person of interest in the investigation into the murder of Billy Joe Jenkins in East Sussex in February 1997, although why Burgess's name was in the frame exactly is unclear. His full movements throughout those 18 months he was at large are also unclear, although he told police that he spent the majority of his time in the Hampshire area. So with his licence cancelled and 10 years added on to his sentence, it was enough to keep Burgess under lock and key for several years following this. In the event, he was still in prison when in September 2010, Thames Valley Police, aided by significant advances in forensic science, began a cold case review of the then 44-year-old unsolved murder of Yolandi Waddington. All of the retained exhibits and case papers from the 1966 investigation were looked at and audited, and a full reinvestigation began. All statements were re-looked at, and witnesses from 1966 who were still alive were re-interviewed 45 years later. Now some items that had been retained as exhibits back in 1966, including Yolandi's oatmeal-coloured sweater, which had been found wrapped around her head and was heavily bloodstained from more than just her, were missing and couldn't be traced. But some items that had been retained, such as Yolandi's white hairband, the comb and the white polythene sack that had been found in the barn were still in possession. These articles were re-examined by scientists from LGC Forensics, who we've met before a couple of times here on the show previously, in 2011, and microscopic traces of blood staining were found upon them, which were analysed using a new technique called minifiler. Now this differed from the usual methods as it can obtain information from much smaller samples of blood staining to obtain DNA, a perfect technique for older cases where samples have degraded. Scientists managed to obtain a good workable DNA profile from the comb and the fertiliser sack that had been retrieved from the barn in 1966 and when it was run through the National DNA Database it came up with a single perfect match. For guess who? David Burgess, of course. Now this was promising, but all it proved at that point was that Burgess had at some point been in that barn. There was nothing to suggest from this that Burgess had been there at the same time Yolandi had met her death. That was until scientists looked at the headband. Now it was described on the evidence bag and in the evidence log as grubby, but what was once considered dirt when it was examined, was found to be minute traces of dry blood staining, a mix of two different profiles. It was again tested, and two DNA profiles were raised from this. One was of course, as you would expect, Yolandi's, and the other showed that the chances of the other DNA profile on the hairband not belonging to David Burgess were one in a billion. It showed that he'd come into direct contact with Yolandi on the night she was murdered. But it raised the question, why had his blood group not been matched in 1966? Police were left considering that Burgess's sample may have been incorrectly categorised or labelled, or, as in the case of Colin Pitchfork some 20 years afterwards, Burgess may have got someone else to give a sample on his behalf. Based on this, on the 15th of November 2011, David Burgess was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Yolandi Waddington 45 years before and was interviewed. During the interview, when asked outright if he'd killed her, 
a composed, indeed, a quite bored-sounding Burgess, said, I had nothing whatsoever to do with her death. I've told you that, but you won't believe it, because I'm a liar, you've said. When it was put to him that he had 45 years before admitted losing a knife similar to the murder weapon, found only 40 yards from Yolandi's body, Burgess replied, That's a coincidence then, isn't it? How many people in Beenham have a similar knife? Are they all suspects, are they? And when it was put to him that more than 40 years earlier, he'd confessed his guilt to prison officers, Burgess claimed, No, I'd never say something like that. If I'd committed a murder, I wouldn't go around shouting about it. The following day, on the 16th of November 2011, David Burgess was charged with the murder of Yolandi Waddington. When he appeared for trial at Reading Crown Court on the 18th of June 2012, Burgess issued a plea of not guilty to murder. Prosecuting John Price QC told the court the full story of the cold case reinvestigation, saying, All of this, you will not be surprised to hear, led to David Burgess coming to be regarded by the police as a prime suspect in the killing of Yolandi Waddington. The prosecution said that the evidence suggested that Yolandi had fought for her life, but Burgess had stabbed her with a penknife after a consensual sexual encounter went wrong, cutting his finger badly in the process and leaving traces of his blood at the scene. The court was told how following the murder, police had taken blood samples from every male villager in the Beenham area aged between 15 and 50, in one of the earliest examples of scientific screening in a police investigation. They tested David Burgess at the time, whose blood matched that found at the scene in three out of the four aspects of the testing process, but was not a complete match. The trial also heard how, when accused during a police interview in December 1969, after reportedly confessing to the murder to prison officers, Burgess had smiled and said, you'll have to prove it. An 85-year-old Alfred Woodley gave evidence as to how he'd found Yolandi's blood-stained clothing, while 74-year-old Peter Jagger also gave evidence via video link from a Salisbury hospital bed as to how he discovered her body, claiming, it is clear in my memory. Defence counsel Joel Benethan QC grilled Mr Jagger about his relationships with other women around the time of the murder. In particular, a 20-year-old Swedish au pair called Sonja who he had employed and who it was suggested he had been inappropriate with. Asking Mr Jagger about his relationship with Miss Waddington, the QC said, Did you make advances to that young girl, which Jagger denied? and then asking about the night Miss Waddington disappeared, the defence counsel asked, Did you go to the barn, have sex with her, have an argument and kill her? Mr Jagger replied, No, I didn't. The court also heard evidence from three retired prison officers who each told that Burgess had confessed to the murder on separate occasions. William Malcolm, John Gilchrist and Derek Murray, then in their 70s and 80s, had all been prison officers working in the high security wing at Durham Prison, where the then 20-year-old Burgess had just begun his life sentence for double murder. First to take the stand was Mr Malcolm, who said how he'd built a cordial relationship with Burgess whilst at the prison, and that in February 1968, whilst in his cell, Burgess had said he'd conspired with others to murder Yolandi after she'd become aware of his gang's petty criminal activity. Mr Malcolm said Burgess had told him she needed to be put out of the way. Burgess also told Mr Malcolm that he'd lured her to the barn and had stabbed her, but that it was the gang's leader who had strangled her with bailing twine, the jurors heard. Mr Gilchrist, meanwhile, told the court how he remembered Burgess talking about the death penalty and saying, It's funny, the only murder I did, I never got done for. Now the prosecution claimed it was unlikely that Yolandi was at the barn against her will and the evidence of prison officer Mr Murray supported that. He told the court that in 1969 Burgess had told him that he'd gone to the barn with Yolandi for a consensual sexual encounter but it had gone wrong and Yolandi had changed her mind and had injured him. 
Burgess said he had been mad with pain, stabbed her and then strangled her, Mr Murray told the court. A witness from Australia, an unnamed woman who had lived in Beenham around the time of the murder, also appeared to give evidence at the trial, claiming that earlier in 1966, David Burgess had attacked her in similar circumstances, although she'd managed to fight him off. So you had circumstantial, you had confessions, and you had bad character evidence. And Burgess is already looking like a puppy sat next to a dog egg, really, isn't he? And this is before the turn of the forensic scientists. LGC Forensics' Roy Green painstakingly explained to the jury about the processes that had been used to extract the DNA profile from the retained exhibits from the 1966 investigation. And Mr Price told the court that analysis of the samples had concluded if the DNA from the bloodstained area on the polythene sack did not come from David Burgess, then it must have come from another person who, by chance, has the same components within the profile. I estimate that the probability of obtaining this result, if it is due to DNA from an unknown person who is unrelated to David Burgess, is smaller than one in a billion, a thousand million. During the trial, Burgess refused to take the stand and give evidence in his defence, seeming completely uninterested in the proceedings almost as he had done some 45 years previously. In his closing address to the jury, Mr Benethan asked them to disregard the previous double murder conviction Burgess had, and that there was doubt that the DNA evidence taken from items, including Miss Waddington's headband that had been found at the scene, was a match to his client. He said that the samples were tiny, equivalent to just a thousandth of a grain of salt, cross-contamination was likely in the almost half-century since the murder. It was almost 46 years since Yolandi's naked body was found in that waterlogged ditch, and after a five-week trial on Monday the 16th of July, the jury retired to consider its verdict. They were out for five days, but on Friday the 20th of July 2012, returned with an 11-1 majority verdict of guilty. The now-convicted triple killer sighed loudly when the verdict was announced and checked his watch, indeed appeared completely bored with proceedings, as he then sat in the dock with his feet up, cleaning his glasses as the barristers discussed with the judge his sentence. Nine members of the jury returned to see Burgess sentenced as finally, two days later, he was to stand before Mr Justice Nicholl, who told Burgess, The stab wounds which you inflicted to her front and back did not kill her. It is not possible to determine the precise sequence of events thereafter, but they included the following. You stripped her of her sweater and her pants. You tied her hands behind her back. You wound a piece of baling twine around her neck four times and strangled her to death. You tied another jumper around her head. Her body, which was now otherwise naked except for her socks, was dumped by you in a water-filled ditch. Yolandi Waddington was only 17. She had just started work as a nanny for a local family. There are many signs that she was a young woman with a zest for life and excited by the prospect of a new job in new surroundings. Abruptly, you cut all of that short. It was a tragedy for her. It was a tragedy for all her family. It was a tragedy for the small community of Beenham where this happened. It spread fear and suspicion and you denied any involvement in her death. The then 65-year-old David Burgess was then sentenced to serve at least another 27 years imprisonment, meaning that he would be 92 years old before he could ever seek being released. By the time he is eligible for parole, should he live that long, he will have spent 73 of his years behind bars. Burgess seemed not to care as he was handed his third life sentence. Indeed, he could be heard laughing with a prison guard as he was led from the court. Speaking on behalf of the Waddington family, outside Reading Crown Court, Yolandi's brother Giles Waddington, at the time 54 years old, broke down as he read from a statement. He said, we're grateful that justice has now been completed 
and that Yolandi's murderer has been identified after more than 45 years. Yolandi's murder had a traumatic and irreversible effect on our family life and has cast a long shadow over nearly five decades. From the outset, our trust of others was destroyed and as a consequence, our family unit closed ranks, keeping the outside world at arm's length. Our mother and father were deprived of experiencing the hopes and aspirations of their only daughter's life events, such as her wedding, her children, and the comfort she would have given them in their later years. The recent reinvestigation and trial have reawakened very painful and vivid memories of Yolandi's horrific death, which we had learned to live with over time. Now tragically, Yolandi's other brother and her mother had sadly died before they got to see justice done. Her father was still alive, though at the time was in a residential home, and he too has since passed away. The family of Jeanette Wigmore said after the conviction, Our thoughts are with the Waddington family and we know what they're feeling at this very stressful time. We hope they can find some peace in the knowledge that their daughter's killer has at last been brought to justice after such a long time. Not knowing all of these years must have been terrible for them. Now it must have been terrible indeed, mustn't it? Suspecting for so long that Yolandi's likely killer was in prison for life, but just not for her murder. You can't imagine how that must have felt, can you? David Burgess was taken off the streets at age 19, but not before taking three young lives in the most horrific of circumstances. Who knows how many he would have taken had he not been stopped when he was. Now reportedly following his third conviction for murder, forces across the country were passed his details and he has subsequently been linked as a possible suspect in a number of high profile unsolved murders that occurred during the time he was at large. Names such as Melanie Hall, Kate Bushell and Billy Joe Jenkins are amongst those that are mentioned. Now Burgess will never ever volunteer his involvement in any other crimes until perhaps one day he's bored and wishes to break up the tedium of prison where due to his age now against his sentence he will effectively end his life. But you have to think, this guy had killed three times in a six month period he was just getting a taste for it and he was enjoying it. If he were then not able to do so for almost 30 years, did that dark desire eat away at him until he was at large to do so, and he possibly killed again as soon as he could? It's certainly in him too, isn't it? What do you guys think? So certainly a well-suited individual for this series' Monsters Of episode is David Burgess, isn't he? The crimes are absolutely horrific ones and alone would mean he deserved the title enough, but the other stuff, his contempt and arrogance in court, to the point where he even had the gall to smile at the girls' families as he walked past them, or buying Jacqueline's father a condolence drink in the local pub just before his arrest, pretending to be all sympathetic and knowing that he was the one responsible for the devastation or smirking telling police to prove it when he was challenged about his prison confessions, or finally so bored and disregarding of finally facing justice for the horror that he'd caused, that all he could do was clean his glasses and bloody sigh. Nothing short of monstrous pure and simple that, and someone who completely, completely deserves to end his days behind bars. I'd love as always to hear your thoughts and opinions concerning the case we've covered this time around, which you can do so in the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or pretty much through any of the show's social media links. Make sure to check out the show's Instagram page for images of the three girls, some stills from the investigation, and pictures of Burgess himself over the 45 years between his convictions as well as the links within the episode show notes for further reading upon the case. There was quite a bit to it, as I'm sure that you can tell from the length of this episode and the previous one. You should have tried researching, writing and recording the bastard, I tell you. I thank you very much for joining me for this and the previous episode, which I hope that you found interesting and informative, and I'll depart now to move completely on to researching and writing the next one which will be out soon. Patreon bonus episode 31 will also be out before the end of the month, 
so I shall catch some of you guys there and then. Until we next speak then, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, expressly safe ones, stay safe all, and I'll catch you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.